Hello, everyone. I'm Dr. Candace Creaseman Mowry, and this is Beyond Therapy. It only takes us coming together, making just one life better than we found. Before we jump into our conversation today, I want to first acknowledge that today's topic pulls at some very deep pain. For our listeners of color, it may be the grief, the rage, the sadness of centuries of oppression. For our white listeners, it may be the guilt, shame, or even the resistance to embodying the oppressor. I want to invite everyone just to take a few breaths with me here to center ourselves, and open ourselves consciously and skillfully to feel whatever arises, no matter how painful, ugly, or incongruent with who we see ourselves to be. So let's take a deep breath in, making room, and a deep breath out, letting go. So now to get our thinking minds engaged, I'm going to start with a quote from David Archer's book, Anti-Racist Psychotherapy. He writes, the dichotomy of white supremacy and black suffering is reflected in the therapist-client dyad. The expert and the novice, the teacher and the student, the healer and the sufferer. But what if these barriers are also socially constructed? As much as they purport to learn from us in therapy, We too can be inspired by our clients' triumphs. The lines are not always clearly drawn. So taking that sentiment into our conversation uh, to help us explore the intersection of personal identity and therapist identity in the context of white supremacy, we're going to be talking about one therapist's journey to awareness of whiteness and hear about how that has taken shape in their art and their therapy practice. I am thrilled and humbled to be joined today by Cassie Hamrick. They are a community-driven art therapist, counselor, artist, activist, and educator currently based on Tuscarora and Lumbee ancestral land, colonized as Durham, North Carolina. They operate an art therapy studio, Healing Justice Arts Collaborative, as a member of the Radical Healing Collective. Here they offer virtual and in-person individual and group art therapy and counseling, clinical supervision for therapists, training and consultation for healthcare providers, and workshops and consulting for businesses, organizations, and communities. Their work in art therapy is deeply threaded with their art practice and their social justice activism. Together, these three modes of work constitute one holistic social justice praxis. They practice therapy from a person-centered, trauma-informed, sex-positive, fat-positive, harm reduction, anti-oppression lens. They're committed to decolonial, anti-racist, anti-ableist, and liberation principles in their work and life. As a queer, trans, non-binary identified clinician, they are passionate about serving the LGBTQIA2S plus communities. And I don't know anybody who walks the walk better than Cassie. So we are going to be talking about their article, which they co-wrote with Christine Bima, titled No History, Know Thyself, Art Therapist's Responsibility to Dismantle White Supremacy. So when we refer to the article, that's what we'll be talking about. 
So let's go ahead and jump in. I wonder if we can start by exploring what drew you to art therapy and maybe even just what drew you to healing work in the first place. Sure, yeah. Um, well, thanks for having me, Candace. I want to say that I'm recording. I'm so happy to be here. Um, I'm happy to work with you on this. Yeah, so, um, so I grew up wanting to be an artist. Um, it was a skill that I had that I was praised for a lot um, when I was a kid. And I also, yeah, just like really love making. Um, so I went to undergrad, I studied sculpture, um, got a bachelor's in fine arts, which is like a more, you know, specific art degree um, for an undergrad experience. And um, really loved it and did not have a whole lot of career prep um, from my college art department at that time. Uh, so I thought, okay, you know, I graduated and I thought, I guess I just have to like figure out how to get famous or something now. Like, is this what people do? Maybe I'll, you know, teach eventually. Um, just really had no idea about how to make it work. So um, that was okay. I bounced around from day job to day job, um, ended up moving to Chicago to be closer to family. Um, and really, and was pursuing my art career kind of on the side outside of day job work hours. Um, but my day jobs, Candace, were terrible, <laughs> like so many people coming out of a bachelor's degree. Um, terrible like customer service positions um, that weren't paying well. And I, I experienced a lot of underemployment, unemployment, and just got started feeling very beat down. Um, I really wanted to uh, create a situation where I could work in social services as a day job. Um, that was work that I enjoyed and then have my art career outside of that. Um, but in Chicago, it's, you know, it's a, it's a city that's oversaturated with um, college and uh, master's level graduates. And it's also a city that's very nepotistic. Um, so moving in, not having gone to school in that city and having a degree that didn't have anything to do with social services, it was really tough for me. And not knowing a lot of people there, it was really tough for me to find that kind of job. Um, so I was feeling really beat down and sad and heard about art therapy from a friend and thought, oh my God, this is the perfect melding of the two fields that I'm interested in. Um, and I ended up meeting a lot of art therapists kind of organically in Chicago. And it was the first time I felt like I was having conversations about art that felt aligned with the way I thought about art and how it functions in community. I was really impressed with the art therapists I met, um, the radical work they were doing, the way they were thinking about art as uh, a transformative praxis. And so I decided that's that was the thing that I should do. So I was really lucky to get connected to some folks at the School of the Art Institute of Chicago. Um, and I completed their art therapy master's program and then moved to North Carolina and 
started being an art therapist. Yeah, I have so little context for art therapy. I mean, because so I feel like my understanding of it is probably incredibly limited to let's make a collage about our feelings. So, which is like, obviously not it. (laughs) So um, so, uh, can you tell me just a little bit, especially since probably some of our listeners are are also not oriented to maybe what some of the philosophical underpinnings are, some of the clinical approaches, like what does art therapy look like for you in your clinical work these days? Sure. Yeah, that's an easier entry question. Well, and it's not as easy because I've, um, I have not figured out how to be a great art therapist online. I'm still working remotely um, with COVID or post COVID. We're still in COVID. Um, and yeah, I ended up during, you know, the height of the pandemic, I really just kind of was doing talk therapy online um, because everyone was in emergency mode. Um, and I have not taken on new clients since then. So I've found that I've stayed in that talk therapy pattern with a lot of my clients who have continued over several years with me. But prior to going online, I have had and still have an office space that I call an art studio. So folks come into my space and there is a couch and a chair, kind of like a traditional therapy office, but there's also a wall that's full of art supplies. There's a table with paint all over it um, and chairs at that table. And I also intentionally keep a lot of open floor space in my office. So some folks come to me because they've had uh, poor experiences with talk therapy. It just wasn't a good fit for them. And they wanted to try something that, you know, could a type of therapy that could happen with less talk or less sitting and staring at each other with the expectation of conversation. Some folks come to me because they already have an interest in art. Maybe they are artists themselves. And actually, I have a lot of folks who also come to me who aren't interested in the art piece and are just looking for a therapist that meets other types of needs. Um, A lot of times identity based needs folks from the LGBTQ community are seeking out an LGBTQ therapist. But yeah, so, you know, my approach looks different with each of those folks, but always um, I offer the option for folks to just like get up during therapy and use the space as needed. So sometimes we're like laying on the floor or sitting on the floor. Sometimes we're at the table making things. I often would get up from my seat to go get art supplies and work on things while someone's talking to me and I encourage them to do the same. So I personally just like that feeling of being in an open studio. And yeah, so that's what I try to kind of uh, create, facilitate for clients. Such a helpful image to create because I mean, it sounds like while it's called art therapy, so there's maybe this expectation that there's a certain amount of kind of medium-based creation of some sort. It also sounds like it's really just this invitation to have a less bounded therapeutic experience. Absolutely. Yeah. That is the type, or I'd say that's the style of art therapy that I feel drawn to in my body. I have also been in other settings where i practice more of like a 
I guess, a directive based style of art therapy. So I would come in with a project for that group or for that individual and say, okay, this is what we're going to do today. And it might look more like making a collage about your feelings or creating some kind of art piece that's symbolic of the emotions. So, you know, there's a lot of different ways to practice. A lot of our therapists from my program also are community organizers. So, you know, a a way of practicing art therapy um, that we talked about and engaged in a lot when I was in grad school is through protest. Chicago's, you know, a historically strong organizing town. Um, it's a union town. And yeah, there's a lot of folks who are doing activism work um, in social justice movements. So, you know, there's, I think... Yeah, I think I I was lucky with this program that the philosophical understanding of what art therapy is, is art healing in community. Um, And that can look a lot of different ways. That can happen in clinical contexts, that can happen in community-based contexts, that can happen in personal life. You know, there's, there's more of like a theoretically broad understanding of what healing with art is and can mean. That's so interesting. It sounds like there are so many different intersecting pieces here like you're naming that the just the geographical location of where you did your studies had something to do with the community focus the activism focus Um, and it sounds like kind of more broadly being in an art field do you feel that that also has maybe sort of a, a deeper connection to protest to activism what what is like art's relationship to activism? I'm sure it's different based on a lot of factors, but what's it like for you? Yeah, well, it's such a big question to answer. You know, I think for me personally, I find that art helps facilitate um, emotional processing and change on an individual level. I'm able to synthesize my life, my life experiences, and my understanding of those things through making. So when I make a piece, um, I'm an artist who tends to enjoy playing with materials first. So I'll just be kind of messing around with whatever materials in front of me. And then I make a thing. And then um, I think what I what I really learned or developed a solid foundation for in my graduate program is being able to look at the thing that's been made and then start making some um, theoretical intellectual connections about um, what is reflected in that piece. Like, how does it reflect my emotions as they existed while I was making it? How do how does that piece reflect um, my social location? as I was making it, right? Like I can't take myself or my identities out of what my hands touch. And I think we can expand that to a macro level, right? Like art, art can facilitate that kind of transformation in groups of people. Viewing art can also facilitate that kind of transformation, right? We're reflecting on what we see when we see the art, what the image is, um, and we also reflect on the maker of the image um, and the message of the image, if there is a message. So, you know, I, yeah, for me, that's a direct connection to like, of course, you know, an example of art being present in the context of a protest 
duh, right? Like a protest is about communicating. It's about sharing messages and and hopefully facilitating change through the sharing of those messages. So there's an artist based in Chicago, Adam Ponce Fuentes, who uh, creates protest banners from fabric and she created a protest banner library. So anyone who is facilitating an action can go to the banner library and rent one of her fabric banners or many of them to use at the protest. It's a really, really, really cool project. Uh, and we also, <laughs> the group uh, of SAIC, School of the Institute of Chicago folks, um, who I was working with when I published this paper, when I co-published this paper, we rented some of those banners um, to kind of follow up with what was discussed in that issue of the Journal of the American Art Therapy Association. Um, so that's an example that I think of. There are a lot of other really amazing examples out there of ways that folks are using art as uh, ways that art therapists are using art as a tool for macro level transformation. I'm hearing how, as you're describing your process of, you know, making, looking, and then having some of these sort of realizations about what was happening or what's being revealed to you in the process or in the product, um, how some of that sounds just sort of very natural, very organic. I also hear how, especially if we're, you're naming some of the macro level pieces that show up, the identity pieces, how especially when we're coming from a privileged identity, like white identity, how I at least would need a framework for being able to feel how those aspects are represented in something that I might make. Um, So tell me a little bit maybe, and we'll kind of shift gears into identity based pieces here. What, and this is also a big question, what has been your journey of sort of understanding whiteness? <laughs> Maybe some key points or key spaces, milestones that stand out to you. Yeah, I think milestones is a helpful question for me. I think one milestone was, um, you know, I, I am product of white working class Chicago. So my parents both grew up in Chicago. My extended family is all in and around Chicago. Um, I think that's very much the, yeah, descriptive of the cultural ethos. They're um, second and third generation. Um, A lot of my ancestors immigrated from Ireland and Eastern Europe in the late 19th, early 20th centuries. So, yeah, white folks who are working lower middle class, um, who, yeah, have recent experiences with immigration due to war. So I was raised with that ethos, but I moved, my family moved around a lot. My dad worked um, in factories. He was kind of working his way up chain of command within manufacturing environments and At that time, I'm not sure if this is still a common practice, I'm imagining it is, but folks who were being promoted to those types of managerial positions would be moved to different locations 
where the company had factories. So we moved around the Southern and Midwestern US a lot when I was young. And I think kind of my, that facilitated my first real reckoning and understanding with white racial identity. Coming from white Chicago folks, Chicago is a very segregated city. So, you know, I think when I say white Chicago, there's a real like lack of awareness around whiteness. We um, I spent some time in the in Appalachia, then spent some time outside of Chicago. And then when I was seven, we moved to rural Kentucky. And it was, yeah, I think it was both shocking to my parents and shocking to me as a seven-year-old who'd been raised by my particular parents um, to see the way the Confederacy was still very much alive in that area, right? So, you know, rebel flags flying everywhere, Confederate statues, of course, and really extreme um, racism within my school environments, my peer environments. Um, and I think it was it was just something that my parents had never really like experienced before. And I hadn't either. And, and my parents, you know, very, I think very much had like a Northern Rust Belt ethos and were being met kind of in the South as outsiders. But I remember just being, them being very surprised at how my black peers were treated and how their parents were treated um, and at the very extreme racial divide that was present in the community that we lived in. Yeah. So that, I mean, I've, I've spent like a lot of my early adulthood kind of sorting through those experiences because they were very shocking. Um, That was also, I think the first time that I really noticed white supremacy not working for me. Um, And in saying that, I mean that my phenotype, my body, my hair, my size, those are all of those features for me are features that are not acceptable within white supremacy. I'm fat. I've always been fat. Um, I grew really fast as a kid. So I was like tall and fat. Um, I have dark hair that turned really curly when I hit puberty. Um, I have like, yeah, facial features that, you know, are not considered traditionally pretty by European beauty standards. Um, and I noticed those, I noticed being treated very differently by my peers because of those physical attributes when I was seven years old in that community. Um, And I didn't put two and two together, right, that that was about whiteness. No one gave me a framework for that at that age. Um, I didn't have that framework until I was in my early 20s. But it hit me. Um, And it's still that sense of not fitting, not being right in an embodied way still very much lives in my nervous system, I think. Mm Mm-hmm. So that, you know, those eight years in Kentucky were an important experience, I think, in my understanding of whiteness, learning about some of the nastier parts, all the parts of whiteness are nasty. And then I'd say my next real, like, jump into racial consciousness was when I began dating my wife. Um, We were both in our early 20s. She's Black and from the South. And yeah called me out on my shit and I was perpetrating a lot of stupid shit 
um, when we first met, I just had no real awareness around my privilege and my white violence in my day-to-day life. And I had no awareness of how that would manifest in our relationship. She has always been very gracious in being truthful and honest with me when I'm acting in a violent white way. And when I say violent, right, like I'm not talking about physical violence, I'm talking about psychological violence. Um, mm-hmm. And a lot of that violence happens subconsciously. Um, like I'm not necessarily aware of it when I do it. And so really being with her and um, has helped me grow in myself, my own awareness of um, my capacity for harm and my responsibility to undo harm. Un, or you know to repair do what I can to repair the harm I've caused in the world and with individuals as well as attempting to undo harm that I've experienced um, or heal from harm that I've experienced yeah all of that has really been thanks to her and her patience and her love wow well I'm I'm curious because I kind of I want us to come back to this piece um maybe on more of like a community based level, but you know, you talk in, in your article and it's, I think a a really important aspect of confronting white racial identity to talk about white fragility and the defensiveness that arises when we are confronted with that white violence with our own biases. What do you think it sounds like for as, you know, supportive and, nurturing as your wife has been in your growth process. I'm curious if you feel like there are other pieces that made you receptive, that made it possible for you to take in when she called out. Yeah. I think probably important to mention is that I know the term white fragility has been challenged um, in online spaces, theoretical spaces, especially since 2020, um, in a more mainstream way. I think the way Robin D'Angelo defined white fragility was, yeah, like uh, white and white people's inability to be faced with their own racial, like awareness of their own racial privilege. Um, And she may have included the term violence there, but folks have really called that out as being like essentially another way of treating white people fragilely. Like what we experience is not fragility, right? It's just violence. It's just unawareness. It's Mm. just a desire to even a subconscious or embodied or pathological, nonetheless pathological desire to maintain the power hierarchy that privileges us, which means we have a pathological internalized desire to maintain white supremacy. Even if we say we don't want to, there's something in us that actually still does because it has equaled safety and it has also equaled power um, or resulted in safety and power. So yeah, I want to say that, you know, I I wrote the article, um, I was young. I was trying to call some stuff out in the field that I saw happening. And I think it's probably a little dated by now. So something that you wrote in the article that stood in such stark contrast to some of the, I guess, more palatable ways that white people try to talk about white supremacy, like white fragility, for example, you wrote internalized hatred 
resides in all white people. So when white folks maybe take this position that you can catch more flies with honey than vinegar and lean on softer, maybe less morally damning ways of talking about white violence, what is your perspective on that? It is what it is. And I think that hatred, you know, I think white people, like, we hate ourselves. (laughs) We're taught to hate ourselves. And we hate other people too, you know, like we're taught to hate other people in that because it's perhaps less painful than acknowledging that we hate ourselves. And I can imagine someone who like maybe has not done so much um, work on white identity um, or under, yeah, understanding like how white supremacy is harmful to them saying, well, no, I don't hate myself. Like, I don't know. I'm imagining someone being like, you're just a snowflake who says, I don't know. I don't know why you hate yourself, weird white person, but you're dumb. (laughs) But, you know, I mean, I think historically, like white people, we tore each other up in Europe. (laughs) And then we tore each other and our land up in ways that were so irreparable that we continued to fuck up the rest of the world. Yeah, you know, so I, I think... Um, you know, for example, it's very easy for me to identify ways that I was taught to hate myself growing up because of specifically because of the way my body looked. And I was also taught that I got treated bad, but I did not, I knew I did not want to be treated as badly as my POC peers were. Um, I knew that I had it better, even as a seven year old. Um, and so I behaved in ways that minimized, um, or that I thought might minimize the violence I received, which for me was by like shutting down, becoming silent and staying away from situations that felt threatening to me. And yeah, as a child, I felt like, I don't know, that was the only option I had to keep myself safe. I think my whiteness played into that decision even as a seven-year-old. yeah. I'm thinking about when I talk about the impact of white supremacy with master's counseling students and how there's this real resistance in the white students, not across the board, but in a lot of them, right, to trying to make sense of this notion that I am a helper, I am a good person, and... I carry this baggage of white supremacy nonetheless. Like it, for a lot of students, at least initially, there's just this locked up in neutral, does not compute kind of reaction to that. I haven't had to in a classroom setting. I often wonder how how my professors, you know, handle it, have handled it, how I would handle it if I were in that situation. But what I have said to people individually, you know, I do a lot of work with clients about undoing white supremacy in their own lives in therapy, because I think a lot of our neuroses come from living in white supremacy, even for white people. And I ask folks like, well, I ask folks to think about how white supremacy is harmful to them and how it would be beneficial how they could benefit from the dismantling of white supremacy in themselves and in the world. And a lot of folks will 
name similar things like, oh, well, I'm fat. I guess that's like part of white supremacy that you're not supposed to be fat. Or I feel um, driven to try to be perfect all the time. You know, I feel like I'm underachieving. I feel like I'm supposed to be a doctor or a lawyer and, um, you know, making a certain amount of money or living a certain lifestyle. All of these things are connected to white supremacy, right? And white supremacist ideals. And so I think, you know, it's important for white people to begin to understand how the theoretical underpinnings and the praxis of white supremacy has been harmful to them. Because I think only then are we able to really invest in the dismantling of the thing, you know, where it's going to be half-hearted unless we feel it in our bodies. I, I think that's such a, a poignant and like raw place to go that, that feels like it's, I can only imagine how impactful that is for your clients, you know, to really feel into to not really be be being called to sort of like an intellectualized version of empathy for some other group, but to like, let's start with how it's harmful to you. And then letting that be sort of the the space where we can cultivate, oh gosh, and it's even worse for people who have these other identities or bodies. There was a question that showed up. Oh, there this thought around like how different it would be to anchor someone's perfectionism, someone's body dissatisfaction to white supremacy, as opposed to what, from a counseling and psychological perspective, we're taught to kind of look back on, which is, well, but how did your parents handle that? You know, what, who were the important caregivers, attachment figures that, you know, taught you? So like really kind of bookending it in a way that doesn't allow for the exploration of these bigger societal factors to show up right yeah and the fact is that everyone's parents were people who were also shaped by their cultural location as well as their cultural environments so their their own and you know everyone's parents have their own intersecting identity factors affect how they parent their children what has been your experience within art therapy of problems of white supremacy what does it look like in an art therapy space and field professionally some of the factors are that there are very few art accredited art therapy programs in the u.s which then results in there being very few art therapy job opportunities um and and the few art therapy programs that exist are primarily at private institutions and private PWIs, um, primarily white institutions. I don't know if there is an accredited art therapy program at an HBCU. There was not last time I looked into that kind of thing. Perhaps there has been work done. Someone has done work, but yeah. I mean, so number one, that is the number one problem. Number two is that like bias exists in grad school admissions practices. You know, that's number two of a hundred. <laughs> like, uh, how to name all the hundred problems. Um, 
I think, yeah, they're not being, so, you know, access to art therapy, higher education in order to maintain or to obtain an art therapy credential post-grad is very biased and limited and, you know, hugely costly, financially prohibitive for many folks. And the field as it exists in a credentialed manner in the U.S. and in other countries um, has always been dominated by white folks, white women, white cis women in particular. And, you know, those are the folks who dominate the, um, the associations and the association boards. Those are the folks who dominate the licensure or registration boards. There is no one art therapy license in the U.S. Um, some states have licensure. Um, most do not. Um, so there's like an art, a registered art therapist credential that you can get if you have gone to school and practice in the U.S., which sometimes helps you maintain jobs depending on where you're at in the United States, what city you're in. Um, sometimes it doesn't really mean anything. No, because people don't recognize it. And insurance companies don't recognize it. But yeah, so, you know, it's not really a profession that you can make money in alone un unless you're lucky to live in a city that has an art therapy program, because that means that the mental health infrastructure in that area will likely include art therapists. Um, so there might be art therapy jobs available. But if you're outside of a place like that, yeah, there's not really options that pay well. Most art therapists graduate and become dually licensed as another type of mental health clinician. So in Illinois, where I went to school, and also in North Carolina, my option was to become a counselor as well as an art therapist. And most art therapy programs now offer all of the you know class requirements that one would need to become a licensed counselor. In California, I think a lot of folks pursue their LMFT. Um, that may be true in other states as well. But yeah, it, there's, you know, there's just a lot of hoops to jump through. <laughs> so that I think that is kind of one class of barriers. Another class of barriers is that there's, yeah, the field is just dominant. It's always been dominated by white people. There is a history of um, very intense appropriation, cultural appropriation and art therapy, like using mandalas, like the mandala coloring books, um, the use of mandalas, you know, was popularized with Carl Jung, um, by Carl Jung, but, you know, his practices were very racist and appropriative as well. So, you know, that, I, I think that's kind of a more, I don't know more accessible example of like what the cultural or appropriation can look like, like white people having drum circles, all kinds of <laughs> like djembe drumming. Yeah. All kinds of shit. Canvas, all kinds of shit. When you think about particular practices in art therapy, or maybe it's art therapy education too, like, what are some standouts maybe in addition to appropriation um, that exemplify sort of how, how much work there may be to do to kind of exercise the white supremacy in the field? 
it's hard to know where to start <laughs> answering that question. I, you know, I like thinking about that term. I'm just stuck on the term exercise with an O. Like it feels, I'm stuck on it because it feels that deep. It feels spiritual, right? Like, and I, I think and talk with, you know, my spouse all the time about like the spiritual bereftness that is required for whiteness to exist. You know, I think one of the reasons at a very, you know, kind of base level that white people appropriate or that appropriation exists within art therapy um, is that we've, you know, I mean, I know our experience in the U.S. anyway is that we had to disconnect with our cultures of origin in order to become white in the U.S. legally, right? The more we can do to hide otherness, to hide non-whiteness, or to prove ourselves similar to white, the more able, you know, different ethnic groups were able to achieve the status of white from the U.S. government. So... Italian people had to fight and petition for that. Irish people had to fight and petition for that. Um, you know, I remember in one of my professors in graduate school, um, Savneet Talwar, who helped me publish the article. She was the editor of the journal that invited me to write the article. Um, and she graciously accepted and assisted me with that one, which was a pretty fiery choice. <laughs> She mentioned a case that happened where a person who had immigrated to the U.S. from Japan petitioned the U.S. government for to be considered white, and he was denied. It was overturned. So, right, like, there were legal processes that led to acceptance into whiteness. And a lot of white folks who came to the U.S. had had experiences with colonization. Ireland was colonized. Eastern Europe was colonized by, you know, most recently by Russia um, or the USSR. But, you know, much of what's considered Eastern Europe isn't Europe, it's Asia. But we disconnect, you know, I, I imagine that historically in a very generalized paraphrasing, um, people d had to disconnect from their cultural origins in order to survive, in order to stay alive. And that's the that's the dirty violence of white supremacy, right? It's about like white supremacy on a historical level has just been about killing. It's been about genocide for domination over land and workforce um, for the purpose of domination over land and over people um, to contribute labor. That's what makes it a little hard for me to answer that question. Like, where do we start? Like we have to start with like white people, like, understanding that, believing that, like learning history, learning our own history, and and maybe a more practical answer to that question is that white people need to step down from their leadership roles in the art therapy world. We do not need more white people teaching in institutions. We do not need more people on leadership of the American Art Therapy Association or any other country's art therapy association. Um, same way we don't, you know, like, I think white women, many progressive white women would say, we don't need more straight white men. Well, we don't need us either <laughs> to be leading anything because the truth of the matter is because we have been raised in 
micro and macro cultures of immense historical denial, we are not thought leaders. We don't have the information to be thought leaders. And I I love that you're bringing in this word safety because I, you know, I connect safety personally directly to trauma. This might be kind of a nebulous question, but it maybe just speak on sort of what, um, I mean, you're naming sort of the violence naturally, you know, precipitates trauma. What might a trauma-informed look at confronting one's own white supremacy what does does that modality do you does that have something to offer to this conversation and to this shift? Yeah, that's such a I love that question and I love thinking about that. Maybe I'm hearing that that question as a clinician and I'm thinking about clinical interventions that exist today that are like that I know about that are common in our fields. Um And I think, you know, sure, undoing the harm of white supremacy can happen and can be facilitated effectively with any kind of trauma-based or trauma-aware clinical intervention. So I, damn, like I should tell my therapist about it. I would love to EMDR, you know, like be a client doing EMDR around whiteness. I haven't found anyone who who has brought that up, (laughs) you know, I've never had a therapist bring that up. Um, And yeah, I don't know if I've also brought that up as a therapist to my clients. I mean, I have, it's a thing that we talk about, but I I've never thought like, wow, the trauma is that like you believe in whiteness, (laughs) you know, Like, maybe we just need to identify that as a negative core belief and pick a preferred core belief that might be more appropriate, more realistic, and try to undo that in your brain. Especially if we're connected to be so identified with whiteness means to be identified with violence and hate and harm. And that is traumatic to everyone involved. Dang, Candace. Yeah. Well, and, you know, I will say, like, another thing, I went to a dance movement therapist for several years during and after college, um, and it was it was one of the first times I was able to, like, be in my body and unlearn shame, shame for existing in my body, <laughs> in my fat body, um, my fat feminized body. Um, you know, I like that was the first place I ever talked about like feeling insecure around my stomach and like allowing people to notice my stomach and the size its size. You know, as I think about it now, like yeah, that was the first place I was really processing like harm that had been imposed on me by the hands of a white supremacist culture. But I didn't identify it that way at the time. You know, I didn't associate it with whiteness specifically at the time. Neither did my therapist. I don't think we, either of us, had a framework to be able to make those connections at that time. Um, My therapist was also white. But, but yeah, but, you know, reflecting on that for myself, I can see, like, of course, you know, any somatic-based trauma protocol, um, any 
any trauma protocol, yes, like we can do that work and focus on whiteness as the trauma. Well, I'm, and I'm glad you bring it back to shame um, because that was a question that showed up um, as I was reading through sort of your description of, I'll just quote you all. Um, so, and again, kind of going back to what was maybe initially termed white fragility, but that kind of conceptually you've shifted around now. A psychological intolerance and lack of emotional stamina for critical conversations about race due to the fact that white supremacist culture shields white people from race-based stress. Shame, blame, anger, fear, and guilt are emotions that often emerge for people from dominant cultures when confronted with discussions about their privilege and complicity in oppressive systems. So my question around that is do you feel like there is something different about the shame, guilt, blame, anger, fear that shows up when we're confronting whiteness as compared to when those emotions show up any other time? So are white folks just like emotion averse generally, or is it a function of that particular brand of discomfort? Yeah, I mean, probably both. Um, And here, like, I'm quoting my partner. I talked to her about doing this podcast before we started. And she was like, are you going to credit me um, (laughs) with, like, all of your education and cite me? Um, So I told her I wouldn't use her name because I don't want her to get stalked. But (laughs) I am crediting my partner. Um, So she's, you know, she tells me that, yes, like all of my reactions are white when I'm reacting to conversations about whiteness and also when I'm reacting to things that aren't specifically about whiteness, right? I, my emotional reactions are reactions that white women are allowed to have. Um, Mm -hmm. So now I'm forgetting your question but I know the part of my answer was that yeah no I'm I'm super connecting with that so like I have this image of sort of like where emotion happens within a person uh relative to their experience of their whiteness and it's like it whiteness is kind of the ultimate filter so you're experiencing your emotions you're experiencing your body you're experiencing other humans like so much of our perception of our internal and external worlds goes through whiteness. Absolutely. Well, and we, you know, most white people are also raised by white people. And so we are, you know, allowed to have certain emotional reactions, not allowed to have other emotional reactions, but that, you know, that cultural programming is part of our childhood and, the way I was taught to emote, um, both directly and indirectly by my parents, my white teachers, my white peers, very different than how my partner was taught to emote or um, other friends and colleagues who are people of color were taught to emote. You know, part of it is just that also like white people anywhere, I can speak to the white experience in the US, like, we don't recognize that we have our own cultural background, you know, like there are things that are specific, culturally specific to being white in the U S that are different from being white or not white anywhere else or not white in the U S 
I was reading a, a part a part of did not finish should have finished. Um, it's this article that Lori Gottlieb was writing for the Post, and um, she gave this example that a, a white patient was telling her a story about being afraid to walk to her car because there was a black man standing nearby, and this client had been raped two years earlier in a similar context in terms of like the scenery and that sort of thing by a white man. And so she reflects on, I wonder why this man's skin color matters. And I want to say something like, tell me a little bit about why you mentioned he was black, but I don't. Um, And I justify it to myself thinking I shouldn't interrupt her story while she's crying um, or that my saying this might sound judgmental. But I also know if I were a therapist committed to racial equity, I would have asked. So real on the spot question, but like what shows up for you as sort of the trauma informed plus racial justice oriented way of managing when someone in a potentially vulnerable position of maybe being activated is also sort of demonstrating their white violence? Yeah. Uh, I do the same shit. Yeah. Yeah. I don't, um, and, you know, I think I also do that around other subjects. Like, I'm I'm very careful and wary about not challenging folks with information that I think they're maybe not ready to talk about. And I think mm. that's probably unfair of me in many instances. Um, and I think that is very much connected to my fawn response, um, which I think is very much a part of my whiteness. Um, like, you know, I'm, I do not currently identify as a woman and I was raised as a girl and young woman, um, before I came into my trans identity my non-binary identity. And it's, you know, like white women are taught to fawn, to fawn towards men, but also to fawn towards everyone. But we fawn differently towards white people than we do towards people of color. Say more about that. That feels really important. We are taught that people, um, you know, even in an indirect way, even in a subconscious way, we are taught that white people, other white people deserve respect and that people of color do not. And it connects to the um, myth in white supremacy, the theoretical underpinning of white supremacy that non-white people are not people. I think that absolutely is still a part of the way white people operate. Wow. Well, I'm just, I'm, you know, hearing just so many connections between, I mean, when you name the fawn response, like connecting that back to, I mean, just some lizard brain stuff, right? Um, fight, flight, freeze, and just hearing how much maybe un, uncharted, at least for me, territory there there is between sort of how we understand our nervous systems to operate and how that intersects with racial identity. Yeah, totally. And I know there are folks who've done work on this. Like I think about, I've never, or I've not yet um, read Dr. Joy Degree, um, who, write, who wrote Post-Traumatic Slave Syndrome. Um, she coined the term, also wrote, um, I think, more than one book about that theory. Um, but I am very sure she talks about, you know, the way white nervous systems function. Um, I'm also very sure that other scholars do as well. 
Well, last quick question. It's like if you could go back and support younger you, what would you do? I mean, I don't know if this feels connected to our conversation or not. Maybe, maybe it does in a systemic way. I would have like really forced myself to do some financial education (laughs) and business education. I, I would have sat myself down and had some hard talks about how to make this career financially sustainable for myself. And I think that is also part of, right, like the, um, the way academia privileges wealthy white people. Yeah, I think that's, no, I think that is so legit. Like, I mean, that, that also feels like kind of an aha moment to me too, is just, I mean, for one, thinking about identity-based barriers that, just the the privilege of sort of white elitist academia for one. And then all of the other offshoots of that, you know, the embodied offshoots of that, that then make it so much harder for anyone who's not the iconic white body. Nobody tells you that they're all about selling out of grad school experience. Well, I'm just so appreciative for your time today. I mean, your, your work is incredible and just, you know, it's bold and it's energizing. And I mean, I think that's just so much of what I at least need to kind of overcome my own lack of endurance in this white body for the activism work, you know, so I'm just so grateful for your voice. Thank you so much. It's so meaningful to hear you say that. And it's so meaningful to have this conversation. I really enjoyed it. Thank you for having me. All right, folks, that's our show for the day. If you want to keep this conversation going, you can follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Beyond Therapy Podcast and just leave us a comment. I'd love to hear what you think. You'll also find links to resources, including some of the ones we mentioned today, like anti-racist psychotherapy. You'll get some background on our crew and you'll get some sneak peeks of what's coming. This is Dr. Candace Creaseman Mowry signing off. Beyond Therapy is brought to you by Creaseman Counseling, mental wellness for all. Visit www.creaseman-counseling.com for more information. Thanks for listening. <laughs>